I invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John 7, 53, the last verse. <clears throat> they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the blessing of being gathered together as your people. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word and as we look at some difficult questions related to the text, we pray that you would grant understanding and insight. Lord, we pray that the truths that are spoken would impact your people, that you would shape us and conform us evermore to the image of Christ. And we pray that you would be glorified through us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we continue in our series in John, and we come now to what is actually a quite difficult and challenging section. Now the challenge comes because this section contains one of the major textual variants that we have in our Bibles. Now you may remember we looked at the question of textual variants when we looked at John chapter 5. Uh, and I mentioned then that this question would come up again later in John, relating to the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, this is a little bit of a complex topic, and so I will apologize in advance uh, if anybody gets lost here. I will do my best to make this as simple as possible. So for starters, have you ever thought of how we came to have our English Bibles? The Apostle John wrote his gospel before the invention of the printing press, and what he wrote was hand-copied again and again and again. After that, those copies were copied, and the copies of the copies were copied, and on we go. Now, over time, manuscripts deteriorate. They tend to fall apart, especially when they are well-used. I'm sure many of you have Bibles in your homes that are no longer usable for they are in such bad condition. Um, so it should not surprise us that we do not actually have the original manuscript, the original uh, manuscript written by John. What we do have instead 
is thousands of copies and fragments of copies dating all the way back to the second century uh, within a very short time of the writings themselves. And so by collecting and comparing the many ancient manuscripts, manuscript fragments, codices, etc., scholars can discern with great confidence what the original manuscripts would have said. But as you can imagine, when comparing handwritten, hand-copied manuscripts, there are going to be some differences between those manuscripts. Uh, anytime you have a difference between manuscripts, that is what is called a textual variant. And so the vast majority of these differences, these variants, are simply errors made by the scribes, right? The misspelling of a word, a copyist error, uh, you know, skipping a word or skipping a line, that kind of thing, very easily understandable. Uh, in this section, however, in John's Gospel, we come to one of the largest textual variants that has worked its way into our manuscript tradition. Uh, this one is not simply a scribal or copyist error, but rather we have an entire story that has found its way into the manuscript tradition, which was, as I'll attempt to demonstrate, most likely not original to John's gospel. Now, what further complicates this particular text is that for many people, it's one of the most beloved stories uh, in the entire gospels. And so to challenge its authenticity frequently produces a strong emotional reaction. But as always, we must be seekers of truth and not be people who are driven by our emotions. So, if you look with me, we'll begin this, this study here. In many of your Bibles, uh, you will notice at the end of chapter 7, uh, a, little, a little note. Uh, mine says, the, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 to 8, verse 11. And so that is the entire story of the woman caught in adultery. Right, so the earliest manuscripts, those earliest copies that we have of John's gospel, the ones that come closest to the time of John's writing, do not contain this story. Right, it just simply isn't there in those earliest manuscripts. Now that is very, very significant when we're trying to discern this question of what John originally wrote. Right, so the earliest manuscripts, the ones that can be dated closest to the time of writing, generally speaking, will be a weightier testimony uh, than something later. For example, if you could find ancient manuscripts and you had one that was written in the second century, right, within living memory of the lifetime of the Apostle John himself, a manuscript like that will generally be given more weight than something from the 12th century, as an example. And so D.A. Carson comments here and says, these verses, the section we're looking at, these verses are absent from virtually all Greek manuscripts that have come down to us, representing great diversity of textual traditions. They are also missing from the earliest forms of the Syriac and Coptic Gospels, and from many Old Latin, Old Georgian, and Armenian manuscripts. All the early church fathers omit this narrative. In commenting on John, they pass immediately from 752 to 8 verse 12. Right, so you'd find a commentary written by one of the early church fathers. They write commentaries much like the commentaries we have today. 
And when they would get to this section in their commentary, they would go straight from verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12, as if the story wasn't in the text. Um, Moreover, a number of later manuscripts, Carson goes on, that include the narrative, mark it off with asterisks or obeli, uh, indicating hesitation as to its authenticity, while those that do include it display a rather high frequency of textual variance, close quote. So this already would be a very, very strong case against the originality of this story. Uh, It simply isn't in the earliest manuscripts. And as he says, in some of the manuscripts that do contain it, there are even little markers, little asterisks in the text uh, given by the copyists to let us know that they were unsure about this story. But that's not all. While most of the manuscripts that do have the story place it here between John 7:52 and 8 verse 12, there are even some that place it after Luke 21:38, right? Not even in John at all, but the story shows up in Luke. Uh, some place it after John 44, uh, 7:44, 7:36, or John 21:25. So you have a story to summarize here, not found in the earliest manuscripts that when it does arrive is searching for a home. As James White puts it, such moving about by a body of text is strong evidence of its late origin and the attempt by scribes to find a place where it fits. Such, he says, is not the earmark of an original gospel passage. All of these things taken together make it a near certainty that this passage was not originally a part of the Gospel of John, close quote. So there's, there's the case we have against this story, and there is actually a lot more evidence I could have pointed to, but for the sake of time, I left it here. Um, but I, I want to address a possible concern that may arise. Right? You may be thinking, well, if this story isn't actually a part of the Bible, well, what else really isn't Scripture? Can we even know what the apostles wrote? Can we have confidence in our Bibles? The answer to that last question is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes, we can have confidence in our Bibles. As we covered when we looked at John 5, 1 to 18, uh, in the sermon titled, Do You Want to Be Healed? You can go back and find that online if you want to get a review of these things. The existence of textual variants, some of these textual problems that we have to face, should not in any way shake our confidence in Scripture. It should not shake our confidence in Scripture. These textual variants are simply a byproduct of the means that God used to preserve his word. Remember again, he used thousands of human scribes down through the centuries who have given us thousands and thousands of manuscripts, codices, papyri, and fragments. Now remember again why this is so significant, why this is such an effective way of preserving his word. Think of what would have to happen in order to bring a real change into the scriptures. You may have heard that argument before that there was a a person or a group of people who changed scripture to, to make it be what they wanted it to be. Constantine always gets blamed 
for some reason, right? But uh, somebody made this change in the Bible and said, now we can't know uh, what it actually said. But just when we consider the method God used of preserving his word, think of what would be needed in order to pull off a conspiracy like that, right? You would have to gather up all of these fragments, all of these codices, all this textual evidence. You would have to make sure you don't miss even one. You would have to then alter all of them to match each other, uh, to introduce your new doctrine or whatever you wanted to do. And you would have to do it in such a way that it leaves no evidence <laughs> that you have been tampering with the text, right? The fact is, there is no such evidence in the manuscript tradition of such broad-scale tampering. Uh, no one person or group has ever had all of the manuscript fragments, all of the textual data. And so, given the means that God used, it is an impossibility for somebody to have made a change like this uh, in, the, in the, the text of the Scripture. Um, and where there are introductions, they are obvious, uh, such as this particular story. We, we can see it when we look at the manuscript uh, tradition, the, the data that we have. Um, and so God used this method of preserving his word. And so the existence of these textual variants should not shake our faith in Scripture. Uh, we should recognize they are simply a byproduct of the means God used to preserve his word. Now, it is true that God, uh, by using this method, preserving his word, uh, this does require a little bit more work for us, right? God could have done things differently had he so chosen, right? He could have zapped a scribe every time he was about to make a mistake. Uh, God could have dropped the Bible out of heaven on gold tablets, <laughs> uh, like what Joseph Smith claims with the Book of Mormon. God could have done it that way. Uh, God could have sent an angel to correct a scribe every time he was about to make a mistake. Right? God could have done it in a thousand different ways, but as we see, he chose to do it this way, to give it to us through history using a bit of a messy process that results in textual variance, but which nonetheless produces great, great confidence that what we have is what the apostles wrote that we do have the word of God. And as we discussed last time, um, if you're going to believe in inspiration at all, right, that God went to the trouble of inspiring his text, we can be confident that God will then also preserve his word, right, that we have what he wants us to have. And so even the very fact that this story has survived after being introduced into the manuscript tradition shows the very conservative nature of scribes. Right? Once something was in, in a manuscript, scribes are very hesitant to take it out. And so that's why we have these scribes including it, but then marking it with these little uh, notes, these asterisks. Um, and so that uh, gives us as well great confidence that nothing has ever been removed from the text or the manuscript tradition. And so the situation that we have uh, in this textual critical task is like working on a jigsaw puzzle that requires 100 pieces, and we have 110 pieces, right? That is a much better situation than trying to do a jigsaw puzzle that requires 100 pieces and only having 85. So please do not let the existence of textual variance shake your confidence in scripture. 
I, I know this is a heady topic, uh, but I believe that we are much better off to know of this field of study uh, and then to be prepared to face questions uh, rather than to be blindsided by someone bringing us challenges that we are unprepared for. Um, but all of this, as we've said, makes this particular passage a sticky one. So for the reasons that I've outlined here, I, am, I do not believe this story is scripture. And so I cannot, in good conscience, preach it as if it were scripture. Right? It is our conviction as a church that all preaching needs to be biblical preaching. However useful other writings may be, we do not draw from any merely human writings for our preaching. It is our conviction that we must preach scripture, that which is theonistos, God breathed. This is the only way for our preaching to possess real authority. We expound, proclaim, and apply the word of God to the people of God. We believe there must be a real, thus saith the Lord, behind true Christian preaching. And this is only possible by preaching the inspired, infallible word of the living God. So for the remainder of this morning, I'm going to do something unique. And that is, I will attempt to illustrate the main points that are made in this story of the woman caught in adultery. And I will do so using examples from the Gospels that are clearly canonical, that are God-breathed scripture. And so my aim is that you will be able to see that all of the points uh, made this morning are clearly biblical, or that everything I say here and, and draw from comes from a true text of scripture. And also I hope you see that we don't lose anything by concluding that this story is not biblical, is not scriptural. Uh, we don't lose any, any truths or any doctrines uh, by uh, dismissing this text. Um, because all of the points are clearly illustrated in passages that are canonical. So, uh, as Pastor Josh already read for us, here is the story. You can read with me if you have it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So there's the story. Uh, the three points that we will unpack and attempt to demonstrate from other texts are these. Number one, Jesus confounds the Pharisees that are attempting to trap him. Number two, Jesus upholds the law, applying it rightly over against his opponents. And number three, 
Jesus shows great mercy and compassion to sinners. So let's begin with the first point here. In this story, the Pharisees had arranged a trap for Jesus. They have brought the case of a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they challenged Jesus by saying, the law requires us to stone such women, but what do you say? And so right from the word go, you can see that something is fishy here. Adultery is not something you can do alone. To be caught in the act of adultery would require two people. Burning question, where is the man? Secondly, they bring this woman to Jesus who is a rabbi, a teacher, and not a civil judge. So from the outset, you can see even in this story here, the Pharisees are really not concerned with the law. They're not worried about truth or real justice. They are dishonest. Their intention here is to trap Jesus. For if he affirms that she must be stoned, this could be grounds to bring an accusation against Jesus to the Romans, who at that time claimed sole authority uh, to carry out capital sentences, which is again why the Jews had to involve the Romans in their accusations against Jesus. But if Jesus denies that she deserves the death penalty, they may be able to accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. And so this is something that the Pharisees and Sadducees did multiple times. They would continually try to set traps for Christ. One example is recorded in Matthew 22, verse 15, where the Pharisees and Herodians plotted against him together, saying, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? All right, this one, as well, was a trap. The Pharisees did not really care so much about the matter at hand or, or following God's law. Rather, if Jesus says yes, he runs the risk of sounding pro-Rome, perhaps supporting the fact that Israel is occupied by the Romans, and perhaps turning the crowd against him. If Jesus says no, he may be able to be arrested as an insurrectionist by the Romans. Jesus, however, confounds them with his answer. Matthew 22, verse 18, hear the wisdom of our Lord. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. If having Caesar's likeness and inscription gives him some sort of claim on the coin for the tax, there's a follow-up question that really should be asked. How much more do we then belong to God? For whose likeness is on you? You, the image bearer of God, render to God that which is God's. The Pharisees were stunned. It says they marveled and left him and went away. 
We see similar traps throughout the Gospels as they would bring to him questions about divorce, about the resurrection, and about Sabbath keeping. And again and again and again in these encounters, Jesus consistently escapes their traps, frequently revealing their hypocrisy, and leaves them confounded. In Matthew 22, after the Pharisees were stumped, the Sadducees give it a try to try to confound Jesus, to trap him in his words. Jesus answered them, and they too, it says, were astonished at his teaching. Matthew 22, 33. Jesus then turns around with a challenge of his own for the Pharisees. He actually asks them about the text from the Psalms that we, rang, uh, that we sang this morning. Um, and he asks them this question, uh, and it's uh, Matthew twenty-two forty-six summarizes the end of all these attempts. It says, And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So again and again, Jesus confounded his opponents and revealed their hypocrisy. Jesus cannot be fooled. No matter how men may attempt to twist things around, God is not mocked, nor can he be deceived. None of us will be able to outsmart God. Now, I'm afraid there are many people who will have a similar reckoning awaiting them as that which the Pharisees experienced. Those who have twisted God's words, those who have sought to let themselves off the hook for their sins through their convoluted arguments and reasoning. My friends, make no mistake. Your excuses, your word games, your hypocrisy will all be exposed when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Any attempts to excuse yourself, to find a loophole in the arguments you would give, will all end the same way as these arguments of the Jews. You will be shown what you are. A hypocrite. So stop deceiving yourself if this is you. Stop deceiving others and recognize this. You cannot deceive God. Repent and turn to Christ while you still can. So there we have the first point. Jesus confounds the Pharisees. Point number two. Jesus upholds the law and applies it rightly over against his opponents. So in this story, which we've been arguing is not actually from Scripture, Jesus saves the woman caught in adultery from receiving the death penalty. And many have argued on this basis that this story, if it were biblical, would be proof that Jesus overturned something from the law of God. This is wrong. For even if it were a truly biblical story, it doesn't even have Jesus overturning God's law. Right? If you, even if you read it just on its own terms, it actually has Jesus doing what, he, what we see from him consistently throughout the Gospels. And that is upholding the holy law of God, applying it rightly over against his opponents. So notice, even in this story itself, Jesus is asked if they ought to stone this woman Jesus bends over and begins writing something in the sand. And as they press him, he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. 
And so now even here, if this were a biblical story, we should not assume that it has Jesus establishing a new criterion for judgment, a new standard for judgment. Right? Scripture very clearly requires civil magistrates to punish evildoers. Right? It even says they have been given the sword for this very purpose, Romans 13, verse 4. And so, if perfect sinlessness were the new standard, that would be the end of all punishments. That would be the end of human government. That would be the end of church discipline. That would be the end of family discipline. That would be the end of all discipline. Right? So, even if the story were biblical, it would be preposterous to say that Jesus was requiring perfect sinlessness to be involved in a matter of civil justice. Right? The story, even on its own terms, doesn't require this. Uh, but Gary North, in commenting on this passage, writes this. He says, The most obvious explanation is that he meant he that is without this particular sin. Let him cast the first stone. And he started writing something in the dirt, and the witnesses immediately departed. Now, we don't know what he wrote. The story here doesn't tell us what he wrote. Uh, but we see that in response, the accusers one by one start to leave. And so, uh, if it were a biblical story, we could perhaps speculate. Uh, perhaps he writes the names of women who were well known in the biblical sense by the accusers, right? Writes them, their names in the sand, and maybe that's why they all walk away. Jesus then asks the rhetorical question to the woman in the story, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one. And then Jesus answers, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So notice that even if we were to grant that it were a biblical story for the sake of argument, it does not involve Jesus overturning or overthrowing anything from the law. For without the witnesses, the testimony of two or three witnesses, God's law does not allow a sentence to be passed. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Nor can only one offending party receive the death penalty in the case of adultery. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Right, so this law, from this true law from God's law, would prevent the victim of a crime from killing their spouse's lover while letting their spouse live. Right, if the victim chooses to press these charges, both parties must receive the same sentence, for God does not allow partiality in judgment. So even in this story, on its own terms, it does not have Jesus abandoning the Mosaic law. Rather, it has him doing what he consistently does, and that is following the requirements to the letter. Um, and so this would be another example simply of how the Pharisees had misunderstood and misapplied the law, perhaps even intentionally so. But Jesus, in contrast, follows it to the letter, as he said he would do. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right? Then through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to explain how the Pharisees had consistently misapplied the law. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said. 
right? This has been the teaching. This has been the application. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. That is not Jesus disagreeing with God's law and replacing it with his own law. Rather, Jesus is correcting the faulty applications, right? The misapplications of the law. And he shows instead what God had in mind all along. Remember, Jesus, God the Son, is the perfect representation of the Father. He reveals what the Father is like. He is therefore the living embodiment of the law of God. Now, unfortunately, I think many Christians have a mistaken understanding of how Christians ought to relate to the law of God. And as a result, are left with almost no idea how they are supposed to live. All right, what's the common sentiment you hear? Well, Jesus overturned the law of God, and so now, instead of that law, instead of those rules and commands, we are just supposed to love. Right, love God and love neighbor. But what is love for God and neighbor? Those, Jesus says, are the two greatest commandments from the law, right? Those commandments which summarize the most of the rest of the law. Matthew 22, 37, 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love for God and neighbor are a summary of the law. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy and Leviticus to give these commands. So then, where would you go if you wanted to get some specifics on how to love God and love neighbor? Is it enough if we just have some vaguely warm feelings toward God and neighbor? It is just some warm fuzzies. Is that what God was after when he commanded love for him and love for neighbor? Are we free to define love any which way we choose, as our culture does? No. God has shown us what he requires of us. He has defined for us how we are to love him and what it is to love our neighbors. He has shown it through his law. So an excellent place for you to start if you want to learn, how can I love God? How can I love neighbor? An excellent place to start is the Ten Commandments. Right, simply start by memorizing them. And for that, I would recommend uh, Westminster or Keech's Catechism. Both have a series of question and answer about the law of God, but what God requires in his commandments. Right? Go and learn what God requires. Go learn what love for God looks like, that we worship him only, no other gods before me. That we worship him rightly in the way that he ordains, not through images or any other way not prescribed in his law. Learn to worship him reverently, right? to honor his name as holy and to worship him regularly, the times that he ordains. Learn to love neighbor by honoring the authorities God has put in your lives. Children, what's the fifth commandment? Honor, you kids know this, honor your father and your mother, right? Um, 
Then learn to love your neighbor, right? To respect your neighbor's life. You shall not murder. To respect his wife. You shall not commit adultery. To respect his property. You shall not steal. To respect his reputation. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And to even begin in the heart. Do not covet, right? Learn what love for God and love for neighbor truly is. Let us be able to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. But God's law is only a blessing and not a terror because of our final point this morning. That is number three. Jesus shows great mercy and compassion to sinners. Perhaps the single point that makes the story of the woman caught in adultery so endearing for many is that it shows the compassion of Christ toward this sinner. And this certainly is something we see again and again through the gospel accounts. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll start in verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she heard that Jesus, uh, learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman was, what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have judged rightly. Where do you and I find ourselves in this story? If we have understood things rightly, we ought to see ourselves as the sinful woman falling at the feet of Christ. Now, as mentioned, the law is only a blessing because of what Christ has done for us. Prior to our redemption, the law is a terror for it reveals to us our sinfulness. All right, it shows us our condition. It shatters the illusion that we are good people. There's a great song that tells a story of a man on a journey to discover the truth about himself. And he begins by looking into these mirrors, which all reflect how he's seen by other people, and he's flattered. Right? People seem to have a fairly high opinion of him, and so he's very pleased But he continues on and finds himself walking in darkness, feeling very disillusioned about this all, 
right? The pride that he had felt before begins to vanish away, and he's left confused and wondering about who he truly is. He comes eventually to a door with a weathered inscription that says, all who would seek reality enter the hall of truth. He comes in and sees at the end of the hall that there's another mirror, right? Tall, majestic, and bright. The radiant glory of this mirror makes him question all the others, everything he had seen in those other mirrors. So a voice rings out like thunder, behold thyself. So he walks up and looks into this mirror. What he sees disgusts and terrifies him. Quote, a face with eyes as black as night, a terrifying sight, the flesh rotting away in sickness and decay. Mangled by disease, I'm unable to breathe. Tell me what manner of creature this could be, because it's not me. So he runs out of the hall and he finds Christ, who explains to him, this mirror is the holy eyes of God. You entered the hall, you asked for the truth. The man that you saw in the mirror is you. God's law is like this mirror. If we look at others, if we compare ourselves to people we think are worse than we are, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we are pretty good people. God's law is like a mirror in that it shows us what we are really like. It reveals to us the truth of our condition. You, me, we are sinners. Who among us has kept God's law perfectly? Have you perfectly loved and served God? Have you honored him as God? Have you glorified him accordingly? Have you offered to him the worship he requires? Have you done it reverently and reg regularly? Have you ever dishonored your father or mother? Have you ever hated someone in your heart, lusted after someone who was not your spouse? Jesus says that is murder and adultery of the heart. Have you ever stolen anything, told a lie, coveted someone else's life, their wife, their property? Right. By this holy standard, you look into this mirror and ask the question, who among us is righteous? Scripture testifies of us. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, this is our condition. Outside of Christ, we are dead in transgression and sin. The holy eyes of God see us as we are. We are wretched, poor, wicked, and sin-sick. We are guilty and we deserve the wrath of God. To go back to the song, the man who finds Christ says, I have seen my soul in the mirror, and it has broken me. I have seen myself so much clearer than I had ever seen. 
Can't you take away all this sickness from my soul and set me free? You can save me, I believe. Christ, our Savior, came into this world and lived the life of perfect obedience to God's law that we were required to live. He died on the cross, taking the penalty that we deserved. He rose again from the dead and offers perfect forgiveness, complete renewal, and eternal life to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. So friends, see yourselves rightly in the story. Come to Christ like this sinful woman, broken over her sin, knowing that she owes a great debt that she cannot pay, but who finds the mercy and compassion of Jesus who turned to her and said, Luke 7, 38, your sins are forgiven. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is who we are in the story. We are those who have found this forgiveness. So let it be true of us, as Christ said, that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Let us see the heinousness of our sin and so see the greatness of grace and mercy in Christ Jesus who covered over our sin with his blood, washing us clean, receiving us as his own. Let this stir us up in love, gratitude, zeal, and affection for God. Let us then take the law of God as our guide, that we may love God and love neighbor as those who have been forgiven. Amen.